man, Dr. Thompson's a tough act to follow. <laughs> it is really a, a privilege for me uh, to be here this evening. It really, really is. I know speakers say that. I mean it. It, it is, I, I just wouldn't have dreamed even a few years ago that they'd have to cut registration off, that it would, a place would be filled where the evangelical church was addressing mental health. Like, this is amazing. Uh, praise the Lord, and thank you for being here. Um, it's, it's so encouraging to all of us uh, speakers and those who helped make this happen. It really has been uh, my joy and privilege for, wow, going on 20 years, um, to focus on ministry to the traumatized. Um, it's not something I looked for. My goodness, when I did my doctoral training, um, I thought I was going to be teaching Greek grammar. And, uh, and I actually have, you know. God had other plans, and his plans are always best. Uh, this just wasn't what I was looking for, um, but I look back and say, thank you, Jesus. Um, it is an honor to stand with the traumatized. Um, it's a costly honor, but it is, it is my greatest delight. I am so thankful, so thankful that we get to do what we do. Um, and I want to thank you. Um, having spent countless hours with people's, people whose bodies and souls have been ravaged by abuse trauma, who've been ripped apart by evil, and hearing how often their churches, their leaders didn't know how to help. On behalf of the traumatized, it's lost the and I serve, thank you for being here. Because you're saying, I'm going to take time on a weekend to get better equipped, to better understand mental health issues. Uh, and that really is a blessing to those who are in need of that kind of care. Um, so on their, on their behalf, uh, I say thank you. Well, as I said, we've been doing this work for about 20 years. Do we have, do we have a PowerPoint? I'm hoping, ah, there we go, best part. Um, Celesta, my dear wife, um, started Mending the Soul with me, and um, so basically most of what I know about trauma, um, she's been God's finest teacher to help me, and it's a real privilege to get to do this work together. Um, I'm so grateful for that. Well, I've been asked tonight if I would address uh, the topic of the burden of the call, uh, the cost of caring. Great, great topic, and I'm thankful that the leaders chose this one. And as I think back, um, I, I've had way too many years of schooling and student loans. <laughs> I've, I've sat through countless lectures, uh, and especially when I, when I did my Master of Divinity at... Uh, Western Seminary in Portland. I was just so gung-ho to get out there. I'd been serving part-time as a youth pastor, but just couldn't wait to, you know, do, get into full-time ministry. Uh, and I know many of you are pastors, many of you are counselors. I mean, you're here because you're in some form of ministry. So I just want to raise the question. What do you expect... And, and for you, a lot of you are young. I love that. Um, so you're looking ahead. Um, what are you anticipating that ministry will cost you? What does it already cost you? 
I can just say for me, as I getting ready to graduate, going to do this full-time, and, and the church was going to move me to full-time, and I'm, I'm stoked. I anticipated, okay, there's, well, there's going to be a financial cost. I know pastors don't make that much money. Uh, I an certainly anticipated some time costs, you know, it's, be a good pastor and, and, and shepherd well, got to work really hard and prepare your sermons and do all the things a pastor should do to be faithful. I was, I was anticipating that. I was anticipating some social cost. You know, sometimes standing for biblical truth is unpopular. So I, I was kind of anticipating that. But I'll tell you what I absolutely wasn't prepared for. And that is an emotional cost. That, that wasn't on my radar. Um, that, that just, yeah, it, it wasn't there. These are some of the pictures of, uh, we minister here in the United States um, in, in multiple capacities, um, but I spend about two months a year in East Africa in trauma zones, particularly the uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, South Sudan. Um, and these are, I could tell whole amazing stories of what God's doing from each of those pictures, but um, the point simply being, whether it's in, in East Africa or, or whether it's here, as we minister to those who've been deeply, deeply impacted um, by some form of trauma, it will cost us emotionally. And I was quite unprepared for that. And I think a lot of people going into ministry, whether it, where it's vocational ministry or, or lay ministry, either way, as we're seeking to serve Christ faithfully and serve his, his flock, whatever that capacity is for you, um, I think often this is the one we don't hear much about, the emotional cost uh, of caring for others. It's important at the outset, as we think of the cost of caring, that we remind ourselves of the gospel message. I think the vast majority, maybe all of us here tonight, are Christians. We use the word gospel frequently, but, but let's just at the beginning think of what we're talking about. The gospel says we are hopelessly broken by sin. We minister to broken people. And we don't have the power or wisdom to minister to anyone in our, in our own strength in a life-transforming way. The good news is found in the gospel of Christ. We know that, but, but let's let that sink in in terms of the cost of caring. The gospel is all about brokenness. Jesus bought our salvation through being broken, through horrific evil abuse. His suffering brought life, and the gospel is the only f sure foundation for ministry to those who are suffering. That is the backdrop in anything I have to say tonight. Um, it has to be gospel-centered. But I think often, at least for me, um, for a long time, I, I kept that in the cognitive, and I didn't think through some of the implications of the gospel in terms of brokenness. Uh, I was focused on sin, and that, that's real central here. Christ died for our sins. But, but the, the brokenness piece, hey, on the third day he rose. Okay, so we're done with that brokenness stuff, right? I think that's kind of the way I approached it. No, Jesus actually... Still in his resurrected body has scars. 
um, that's saying something to us, um, should be saying something to us loudly. So I'd, I'd like to give you three lessons tonight, some things I've learned over a couple decades of um, privilege uh, of serving the traumatized um, here in the United States and around the world. And I didn't learn these in the classroom. I learned it from, from ministry. And uh, like maybe some of you, I've had to learn some things the hard way. Um, but God is so patient, isn't he? Here's the first lesson I've, I've learned about the cost of caring. Uh, and it's this. Suffering and joy are inseparably linked. Suffering and joy are inseparably linked. That is not going to make the New York Times bestseller list if I make that the title of my next book. It's not really what we want to hear, but it's eminently biblical. Yeah, and that's the irony of the gospel. Um, joy and brokenness, pain and blessing are not mutually exclusive. They're inseparably linked. Notice what Paul had to say to the Colossian church in Colossians 1. It's one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. And this is a staggering statement. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. I'm a theology teacher. This would be an awesome essay question. Pray tell what was lacking in Christ's affliction. We're Protestants, right? Which, at least the Protestant church, I think most of us are. One of the distinctions of Protestant theology is Sola gratia, by grace alone. We don't earn our favor with God. Um, didn't Christ say on the cross right at the end to Telestai, it is finished? Like, what could be lacking in Christ's afflictions? Like, do we need to add to it? Do we earn our salvation by suffering a little bit more? I mean, you know, do we need to do penance or is that going to earn more of God's favor? Is that what Paul's saying? might seem that way, but it's surely not. That go go against multiple other things Paul said. I think here's the point. In terms of salvation, soteriology we call it, Christ's suffering was absolutely complete. complete. And that's why he said it is finished right before he died. He gave up his spirit. Nothing can, can be added to the sufficiency of Christ's suffering for our salvation. But to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth, to work out the gospel message to the church will require suffering. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying this in a, in, in a context of ministry, in a context of serving the body of Christ. Um, and and he, we read that language of 
struggling to help these young believers grow. But Paul says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Now that's rather counterintuitive. I rejoice that I'm suffering for your sake to fill up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions. So right off the bat here, we see that suffering and joy are inextricably linked and it's in a context of serving the body. Now it would be, and for the longest time, I thought of this in terms of, of Paul's kind of physical suffering. I mean, Colossians is one of the prison epistles. Paul wrote this from prison. So we might just think, um, okay, Paul's in chains, he's in prison, that's how he's suffering. And, and that's certainly part of it. And that's not as easy for us to identify with. I don't think many of us, probably none of us, have been in prison for the gospel. But it was more than that. I read in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about his emotional suffering as a cost of caring for the Corinthians. He says this, apart from, and he gives a list of ways uh, of the cost of, of serving them. And then he says, apart from all these other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety. Well, that's interesting. Paul even uses the word anxiety. Uh, for all the churches, who is weak that I am not weak? I think the point here is that Paul, as a caregiver, if you will, a caregiver for the gospel, suffered emotionally when those he cared for suffered. Uh, that's the cost of caring, and it's very real. Uh, Paul, Paul speaks of this daily pressure for the anxiety he felt for those in his spiritual care. When they were weak, it made him weak. He felt the impact of sin in the lives of people he loved. And yet he did that with tremendous joy. It will cost us. Um, joy and pain go together in ministry um, to those in need. I love the statement from Henry Nouwen. If you know anything about Henry now, and you, you'll remember that he, I mean, he was like a tenured prof at three Ivy League schools. I think Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. Like, who does that? Um, I mean, top, top of the top academically. Served the poor, and God led him to give the last about decade of his life to being a caregiver in, in a home in Canada for the severely disabled uh, mentally disabled. He lived a life of suffering voluntarily. And he said this, the disciple of Jesus goes where the pain is because God is hidden in the pain. Trust that by throwing yourself into that place of pain, you will find the joy of Jesus. That is good theology. That, that fits what Paul told the Colossians. So that's the first lesson. Pain and joy are inextricably linked as we serve others. Second lesson, and it's um, closely related, is this. Gospel ministry will exact a certain yet unpredictable emotional spiritual cost. There will be a cost, but we don't know on the front end exactly what it's going to be. 
Um, if you have your Bibles, don't worry if you don't, because um, I'll throw some of these passages up here. But if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 10. I want to draw a few things from uh, a very well-known passage, parable, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is a great text uh, for us to get some, some lessons on the cost of caring. Pretty fascinating to me that, and I think you're, you're most likely aware of this, um, Jesus told this story to answer a questioner's question about who is my neighbor. Because if we keep things real vague, I sometimes, I love my seminary students, but sometimes, and I was the same way, sometimes seminary students can be very ethereal and, you know, keep it in the stratosphere of theory. And so that's what this guy is doing. Well, who's my neighbor? So Jesus gives him the parable, the Good Samaritan, to tell him who the neighbor is. And if you know the story, you know he really hammers this guy with this. Um, but it's fascinating to me that in a story of what love looks like, Jesus gives the example of a man, of a trauma survivor. A man who was a, a physical abuse survivor. I think that's pretty significant in and of itself, that that's the quintessential example, uh, at least that Jesus uses, uh, of, of what love looks like. It's caring for an abuse victim. Jesus goes into a lot of detail here. He he actually uses 12 different Greek verbs to describe nine different actions that the, the Good Samaritan um, carried out to care for this traumatized man. I just want to pick up on a couple of them. But let me start with the very last of, of the nine. The last thing the Good Samaritan did is he gave the in, you know, he gets the guy on the donkey, bandages his wounds, gets him to an inn because he apparently is on a business trip and he can't stay any longer, gives him to the innkeeper and, and gives the innkeeper t um, two denarii, which at that time would have been 24 days worth of care at the inn. But then he says, Tracy paraphrased, but the idea is, I'm going to be back from this business trip in a while, and if it's any more, I'll pay up, I'll settle. What does that say to us about caregiving? It says there's an uncertain cost. You and I don't know on the front end what it's going to cost us to care for those in need. Um, at least for me, I, like to, I really like to manage my life. I, I like to know what I'm getting into. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Um, cost of caring is a real cost, but, but we don't know on the front end. Um, any more than the Good Samaritan knew. But let's, let's go back and notice the very first two things um, that, that we see in the account um, of the Good Samaritan. Of course, the man is, is robbed, he's beaten. Luke uses an interesting word in Greek. Um, it's literally a compound word that means he's, he's half dead. Um, that, that's a literal translation. He's lying unconscious, half dead, from abuse, and notice that the very first thing the Good Samaritan does, this is huge for caregiving, he saw. He saw. Every word is important here. 
God's inspired everyone. Notice he didn't pretend they didn't see the man suffering. He didn't shut his eyes. He let it sink in. Now, that is in direct distinction. If you remember the story, there's a priest and a Levite that precede him. The text says they, they walked on the other side of the road. They saw a man unconscious, and they went literally as far around as they could on the path and kept going. We've all done that, literally, and I imagine we've all done that metaphorically. But the good Samaritan, a man who was willing to pay the, the cost, the price of caring, saw. He didn't succumb to what we might call compassion fatigue. Um, and we're all tempted, aren't we? I mean, especially in this information age. But, but human nature hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Um, we're, we're inundated with images of suffering, uh, pictures, stories, and we can just kind of zone out. And after a while, just that doesn't impact us. The Good Samaritan teaches us that if we're really going to be a caregiver that honors God and loves well, we're going to see and keep seeing. Certainly one of the factors in, that, that, that we fight against is a sense of powerlessness. Who wants to look at something we might not be able to change? There's a lot of suffering around us. In fact, the majority of suffering around us, the bulk of suffering around us, we can't stop. We can't change. So it is so tempting to quit looking, to just not see it anymore. But he didn't do that. The Good Samaritan saw. And I love that picture, if we can bring it back up. Um, I mean, you just see the intensity. He is looking, and he is on the move. But it starts with, with looking. It starts with being willing to take a hard look. Uh, every Lent season, um, I do a variety of things. Uh, our, our church in Portland, Imago Day, ha has a wonderful Lent season and um, readings and some wonderful special services. Um, so for the past several years, I, I've just added various things to my own practices to make this a, a, a very special time of year. Um, and so I do some special reading. And this year, I'm reading a very <laughs> weighty new book uh, entitled The Crucifixion. Uh, by Fleming Rutledge. It's a, it's a very in-depth book. This woman has one of the most real-world theologies I've ever read. She lives in the world of pain that you and I live in, and I really appreciate that. Um, and, and last week, I read this section on suffering and seeing that I want to share with you because it's so helpful as we think of seeing as an aspect of the cost of caring. The whole enterprise of theodicy um, that the defense of God in light of suffering and evil is misbegotten. Philosophical defenses flounder. Attempts at explanation distract us from the real-life predicament of sufferers and perpetrators of like, uh, alike. Evil is neither rationally nor morally intelligible and must simply be loathed and resisted. The beginning of resistance is not to explain. We theologians love to try to explain. Sometimes church leaders love to try to explain, but you know what? You can't explain evil. You can't. It, it, there is no adequate explanation. 
The beginning of resistance is not to explain, but to see. Seeing is a form of action. And I would argue that seeing is a courageous form of action, that we're willing to continue to look at the suffering around us. And in our context this weekend, particularly the, uh, the mental health suffering that's all around us. Well, second, second verb that we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he saw and he had compassion. I love this, this word that, that's, that Luke translates from Greek, splogkanidzomai. Um, it's just fun to say. Um, the Greeks got this well. It literally, um, in, in Greek, the Greeks understood the seat of emotions to be the bowels. <laughs> so it, this word literally means to, to have your bowels churning. And actually, that's, that's pretty insightful, isn't it? Because if we see hideous suffering, chances are there's going to be an, an immediate sense of nausea. Um, you know, we, we feel it viscerally. That's the idea here. Um, that, that sickness in the pit of our stomach. This word is used multiple times in the Gospels of Jesus. And of course, Jesus is our example and our model for what caregiving looks like. Multiple times, the same Greek word is used. It's used when Jesus saw a widow who had just lost her son, and she was desperate and weeping. Jesus saw her, and he had compassion, made him sick at his stomach, so to speak. When Jesus saw a blind man, same thing, the desperation, the suffering, Jesus saw him and had compassion. Used of a leper, I mean, multiple times. You get the idea. Jesus was filled with compassion, and it was an act of compassion. Having compassion is, is a natural godly response to truly seeing, but it's not a passive response because we can start to shut our hearts down. We've all experienced that. Um, we can distance ourselves emotionally from suffering. Jesus entered into it. He leaned into it. He was compassionate. Some of you know that our daughter, Abby, uh, has been a missionary in Uganda to street children for uh, going on 11 years. It's hard to believe. I have learned so much. I, I love it when God teaches you through your children. Uh, we're blessed to have three children. They're all grown, uh, 31, 31, 35. And um, Abby has just had a wonderful ministry by God's grace, married a Ugandan man. Um, early on, this, this was, she'd been there about a year um, she had a blog that was pretty raw and honest, like 20-somethings do. Um, <laughs> and I love that. I love that. Um, those of us my age, we, we've got it all together, so we would never admit we have certain thoughts. But um, just she put it out there. She said this early on, and she had had some just, you can imagine, she lived in the slums, um, the things she saw on a daily basis were absolutely heart-wrenching. Um, so th this was her entry one day, and it really I I've learned from this about um, compassion. The orphans, the street kids who must steal and rummage through trash to get by, the widows, the lonely, the eight-year-old girl who's been sold into the sex slave trade, the mother who's lost her child and is now dying of AIDS, 
the underdog who can't get on top, the child who's forgotten at home, the community that's slowly starving to death because of a drought, the child soldier who must kill and be beaten to survive, the woman who's divorced because she was raped, the marginalized, the abused, the suffering. Carry them in your heart. Carry them even though it's hard and it will hurt. It will really hurt. Carry them. Because sometimes they cannot carry themselves. Pray. Pray without ceasing. I can hardly get through that because I have names and faces for every one of those categories. People I love. They haunt me. I have nightmares over some of those. I can't take away their suffering. Am I going to distance myself? Man, I'd, I'd sleep better at night. Or am I going to be willing, and are you, to carry their pain? To carry their pain in our, in our hearts when it hurts. And to not distance and not shut down. Because you and I serve a God who's compassionate. That's costly. We don't even know where that's going to take us. So we carry them in our hearts. Well, that was 11 years ago. That was actually the first street kid that, by God's grace, Savvy was able to bring off the streets. His name was Patrick. And there have been, I don't know, 150 since then. Um, so pain is a unnecessary cost of gospel ministry. We see, we have compassion. But let's keep tracking here. Pain is a necessary cost, emotional pain, but it's important that we're, that we're realistic about how costly compassion can be. Let me give you just a little bit. Uh, I'm quick, quick, quick summary. It's dangerous when I have psychiatrists in the room who, who could really give the details, but I know how to read. So I, let, me, let me give you a little bit from the literature um, Charles Figley is a, a really well-respected well trauma expert. Um, bulk of his research, I think, has been with uh, combat vets. Um, but in the last couple of decades, a lot of good research has been done on what we call secondary trauma. Secondary trauma, so we finally, and it was largely the result of, of um, the Vietnam War, um, we started realizing that when you, when you experience traumatic events, they, they change the way the brain functions. Um, literally, the, there are changes in, in brain chemistry. Um, and so there are you know, categories of trauma effects, hyperarousal, intrusive thoughts, various things um, that, that are very biological. A little more recently, a couple decades now, um, social scientists have, have come to understand that there's another category of trauma called secondary trauma, and that's not being exposed to the direct trauma yourself, the life-threatening event, but caring for people who have experienced trauma, and hence it's, it's called secondary trauma. Uh, Figley defines secondary trauma, or it's sometimes called secondary traumatic stress, 
uh, as the natural consequent behaviors and emotions resulting from knowledge about a traumatizing event experienced by a significant other. It's the stress resulting from helping or wanting to help a traumatized or suffering person. Wow. So you and I can be traumatized by serving the traumatized. And here's what's fascinating to me. In the social science literature, the impact of secondary trauma is virtually identical to primary trauma. Wow. All the way to full PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. So it's not just having been raped or whatever, primary trauma, but if you're serving people who have, you can experience the same kind of trauma symptoms. Really good resource, the Child Trauma Academy. Um, Bruce Perry is connected with them, really, really fine researcher. Um, they identify six factors for secondary trauma, six identifiable factors. And notice these. Empathy. <laughs> wow. Empathy is a virtue, right? But you see, sociopaths don't, don't get secondary trauma. Satan loves, by the way, to prey on the best part of how God's made us. Empathy is a, is a beautiful thing, but that's actually an identifiable factor in getting secondary trauma because you're, you're feeling the weight of another person's suffering. Insufficient recovery time. Those of us who do a lot of caregiving sometimes, and especially you clinicians, you just go from one traumatic story to the next, to the next, and there's not, not time to recover. But it's not just clinicians. Um, unresolved personal trauma. Exposure to children's trauma. Isolation. Lack of systemic resources. Those are six identifiable factors for secondary trauma. You know what? Virtually all six of those are really common among ministry leaders. Now just think about that. Okay. Third lesson. Emotionally costly ministry requires deliberate self-care. That's the good news part of this. Emotionally costly ministry requires deliberate self-care. It's really well known that those in the caring professions who devote their lives to caring for others are often the worst about caring for themselves. Counselors, social workers, pastors. I've seen a lot of research, and I certainly know it anecdotally, and sadly, I know it personally. Um, we love helping others, but it's easy to overlook caring for ourselves. And I think as Christian leaders, we have this other dynamic. Um, you know, we, we have this conviction, and it's biblical, that eternity is, is at stake in, in what we do here and now. And we can kind of ignore the here and now because of the eternal significance. And that sounds great in theory, but um, that, that strategy will impale itself on our own human limits. Um, we can try to act like Superman, but we will never be able to fly. Um, in fact, we'll crash. And I have watched countless missionaries, counselors, pastors, 
break down, and in some cases have full psychiatric breakdowns because they cared and cared and cared and cared for others, didn't care for themselves. Um, and that's uh, quite honestly been a struggle for me. My first five trips to Africa, we'd spend up to two months in war zones, um, day after day after day with trauma survivors, um, genocide survivors, torture rape survivors, you name it. And, and it was an honor. It, it is. We still do it. But for five years in a row, I would come back sick physically. Um, and typically, the doctors couldn't, couldn't diagnose it. And I finally had a dear friend um, who said what I needed to hear. He said, Steve, it's great to have a heart that bleeds for the suffering of the world, suffering of others, but you can't help anyone if you hemorrhage to death. Ouch. Wow. And I really heard that as the voice of God and uh, determined to make some changes. I, I couldn't continue doing what I was doing as much as I love the work. And I know I'm not alone. This is, this is a story many of us have. We love getting to, to serve the the needy and those who've been impacted by trauma, and yet we've got to attend to our own self-care. So let me give you four strategies from the Gospel of Luke. Um, I will throw up here, um, again, from some of the social science research. Um, I love it. I'm trained as a biblical theologian, but I'm not afraid of good science. Uh, I love it when general revelation, um, social science just... Corroborates beautifully as it very often does um, with biblical principles. Um, but this is what we find from the social science literature in terms of effective um, self care so that you don't get secondary trauma. Maintaining physical health and fitness, maintaining a balance between work and personal life, uh, meditation, spiritual practices, that's the way it's described in the literature, availability and use of social support. Literally define professional boundaries and limits. Good professional supervision. Um, those are huge factors in being able to run a marathon, if you will. But again, we don't always have those because um, we're busy for the kingdom. Well, yeah, we should be busy for the kingdom, but if we don't care for ourselves, we won't be able to do it long term. So let me, let me give you four things um, that are eminently biblical and I think really practical in terms of our self-care. And the first is, sit and receive. Sit and receive. I take this again from um, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Think with me that right before the story of Mary and Martha is the story of the Good Samaritan. As soon as you, at the end of that, um, the punchline of the parable, uh, Jesus turns to the that man who is my neighbor, and Jesus tells a story and then says, go and do likewise. What's interesting, uh, now we have the account of Mary and Martha, but if you check the other gospel accounts, this seems to be out of order chronologically. And we know from the other gospels, Jesus actually wasn't near Jerusalem at this time. This is about two miles from Jerusalem. Um, so most evangelical scholars believe Luke 
put this here out of chronological order, which is quite acceptable. That doesn't mean it's erroneous. Um, but Luke told us in chapter 1 that he, he had some specific theological purposes. So it was understood in the ancient world that that's a very acceptable way of, of doing this kind of biography. Um, I think Luke is picking up on the go and do likewise under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit knowing that going and doing likewise, caring for the traumatized would be very costly, I think God has led him to now insert the Mary and Martha story as one way we can go and do likewise and do it well for a long term, or, you know, a, a season. And I, I'm assuming you're, you're familiar with this, so the sake of time, I'm not going to walk you all the way through it. I have a little bit of the text here. I think it's the, uh, actually I don't. Um, yes, I do. So you know the story. Um, Jesus had a special relationship with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, their brother. Jesus is in town. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet and Martha's upset with that. Martha is, but Martha is doing good things. It would have been extremely rude in Jewish tradition when the rabbi comes to your home if you didn't take care of him, make a meal. I mean, that is hospitality in the Middle East. Um, we can read this story and think, well, what's her problem? No, she's doing good things. And Jesus says that. But notice, and she's doing what a woman would do. It's absolutely within Jewish custom that the women would prepare the meal. I mean, everything that Mary is doing is, is to be, ex excuse me, uh, Martha. Martha's doing what would be expected to serve Jesus and serve the other disciples. She is, in physical ways, caring for them by preparing the meal. In our ministry to others, we can be doing really good things, things that are meeting needs, but along the way, we had better sit at Jesus' feet and receive. Notice Jesus, and he does it gently. It's not a, it's not a criticism. He's gentle. Um, but but he, he needed to give a, a point of correction. Um, because Martha came and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister's not helping? He's basically saying, chew her out, Jesus. She's not doing her job. She's not being a good caregiver to the physical needs here. Straighten her out. Because um, Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, receiving his teaching. And uh, Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. You know, there are a lot of things that are good, but not everything is necessary. It is necessary that we sit at Jesus' feet. You and I can never meet all the needs around us, ever. We're to do all we can. But what's necessary in our self-care is that we sit at Jesus' feet in a regular, regular way. And if we don't, we can't run the race. And it'll be really costly really costly. I have been so blessed by reading um, 
accounts, a biography of Mother Teresa and, and some of her writings. Of course, she passed away several years ago, but for over 50 years, uh, Mother Teresa, I mean, she was like this tall, um, lived in Calcutta, India, and served the poorest of the poor. Mother Teresa's, I mean, one piece of their ministry was simply to be with people as they died, care for them physically, wash them as they were dying. Just, I mean, literally, I can't imagine the secondary trauma, and I'm sure primary trauma as well, Mother Teresa experienced over, over five decades. But as I've read about her life, I've come to so appreciate the care that she put into her self-care, especially sitting at Jesus' feet. I want to learn from that um, because she did this really well for over half a century. Um, Her daily schedule, and it's what she followed scrupulously, they got up at 4.30 in the morning and they went to bed at 9.45 at night. But there are two things about her schedule. I've read that every so many days, and I I didn't get the exact formula, but I think it was for every six days of ministry to the poor, she'd take a full day off. And then I think it was for every three weeks of ministry to the poor, she'd take a week off. And for every 11 weeks, excuse me, months, she'd take a whole month off. And it wasn't to go to Cancun or Bali. It was basically to do spiritual retreats. But then the daily schedule, um, I I gave you that up at 4.30 and bed at, and and you can get this on the internet, uh, in bed at 9.45, very disciplined. But I I added it up and they they broke the whole day down. Um, Seven and a half hours a day was what they called working for the poor. Four hours a day was time with God. And it was broken up several times during the day. Um, So it was prayer, it was mass. Um, An hour and 15 minutes was adoration. If you know anything about Catholic theology, you know that adoration is, um, they bring out the elements, which in Catholic theology they believe that is the body and blood of Christ. It's what we call the doctrine of transubstantiation. Um, so Christ is literally physically present in the elements. Um, I don't agree with the theology, but that's not the point here. Um, she would spend an hour and 15 minutes a day in that adoration in the presence of what she understood to be the presence of Christ in the elements hearing the voice of God, praying, um, being in his presence. That says so much to us as caregivers. Um, Four hours of her day. Um, Wow. So sit and receive. That's that's, that's a huge part of our our, um, self-care. We can run run the marathon. Secondly, um, withdraw. This is the very next chapter in Luke 11.1. Jesus was praying in a certain place. Now, Luke in this chapter doesn't tell us where that place was. But earlier in Luke, um, 
and in Matthew, we see that Jesus many times would go to a, a wilderness place. He would leave the multitudes and go off by himself to pray, often all night long. And I think most likely that's in Luke 11, 1, what Jesus is doing. Um, he withdrew from the masses, masses that still had needs, and he was by himself. Notice in Matthew 14, 13, one of those times, um, Jesus had just heard about the, the murder of John the Baptist, and he was so close to John. John was the forerunner. And of course, it was, it was such a horrible act. John's head is chopped off and put on a platter. Jesus received word of that, and we read in Matthew that as soon as that happened, Jesus left the multitudes, and he withdrew. What that says to me is there are going to be those times where really hard, hard things happen. We hear, Jesus heard a really hard traumatic story and he withdrew. There's still needs all around him. He withdrew. We need to withdraw for a lot of reasons. It's that time to reflect, to self-assess, hear the voice of God, recalibrate emotionally and physically. Jesus did that regularly. It's absolutely essential that we do that. I, I don't have a picture here, but um, last year, I had, well, let me go back. Two years ago, we go to Africa once, now twice a year, um, usually in the winter and spring, um, and the year before, we'd been in the Congo. We were, we were there days after a horrible massacre. Uh, and we were with massacre survivors the whole time, story after story after story. And it was a super hard trip for me. Um, I mean, anyone with any empathy. Um, I had nightmares for weeks. It was, it was, it was hard. Um, put me into some depression. Um, and the Lord saw me through, and I fine-tuned my self-care. But the Lord made it really clear to me that I better up my self-care. So this last year, Slust and I um, did a five-day silent retreat. You know how hard it is to be silent for five days? <laughs> like, I feel like such a wimp. Like, I, I read the stories the, from the early church fathers, and they would spend months. Um, it, it's, real, it's a normal part of Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition to, to spend weeks. Man, I, I wimped out on five days, and I, I did cheat a few times. <laughs> I, I admit, I admit, but um, there's a, a Jesuit retreat center in Northern California. Uh, a friend of ours had gone, and uh, it was one of the best things I've ever done um, to, to get ready for the next Congo trip. Um, but I went into it with yeah, I just, a heavy heart, just so many, even when we're not in Africa, our partners send me videos, and I'm getting constant stories of new kidnappings, and sometimes people I know that have been assassinated, and just gruesome things, we talk on the phone, um, and my heart was just really, really heavy going into that, and I was rustling with some very specific things before the Lord particularly my sense of God, like, 
can't you see what's going on? I mean, I'm a theologian, okay? I know that God knows. I, I teach on this. God's omniscient. I get that. But at a human level, this isn't theory. This is how when everything changes, when you're actually sitting with, and many, many of you understand exactly what I'm talking about. Fine and dandy in theory, but when they're in front of you and you love them and you're watching the destruction, everything changes. Um, so I was having one of those periods because there'd been trauma after trauma, people I loved. Uh, and I, it's about a, I don't know, 30, 40 acre facility and um, they have statues and, um, you know, kind of life-size Jesus on the cross. Um, and I was just spending some time hours um, sitting at different stations of the cross and just sitting there. And the Lord spoke to me so loudly. I, I didn't bring my journal from last year. Um, and in one of those, I was just feeling the weight of, God, I, I feel so impotent. I, 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 I know I can't do anything. I, this is, God, this is just breaking me apart. And as I, as I was spending a couple hours sitting as a little bench there, um, just meditating, looking at the cross, Jesus on the cross. Um, it, it, it was as loud as if it had been audible. It wasn't, but it was just as loud. I heard the Father say, how do you think I felt watching my son on that cross? Do you think I understand what it's like to watch people you love suffer and not be able to stop it? Of course I do. Of course I do. I couldn't stop Jesus, my beloved son, suffering and carry out human salvation. You're suffering the same thing, but not being able to stop the suffering of people you love. Look to me. I understand. Oh, my goodness. What a difference that made. But if I hadn't carved out five days, and I, you know, we're all so busy, not that it has to take five days, but I think you understand. If I hadn't just gotten my calendar and said, I'm going to carve out time to withdraw and sit at Jesus' feet, I don't think I would have had that experience. Oh, maybe God would have used something else, but I think it would have taken a lot longer. Um, so withdraw. Two other really important principles. Third, again, Luke 11, 1, join, join. Notice, um, Luke 11, 1, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. So they, they interrupt him. <laughs> Jesus is having his spiritual retreat in the wilderness. Disciples end that. Uh, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I'm going to get to prayer as the last point. But, but notice with me, it's a plural pronoun. First person plural. Jesus, teach us. This is so obvious that it's easy to miss, to, to just skip over. There were 12 disciples. They were together. They weren't alone. Dr. Thompson communicated that really well. Um, we're made for relationship. And we need each other. So Jesus had 12 disciples that traveled with him. It's like the band of brothers. 
Anishadad sisters, because we see in Luke 8, 1 through 3, that there were several women, uh, three named women, who traveled with the male disciples. So it's this tight group, and they ministered together. That is so important for us. And even of the 12, Peter had an inner, or excuse me, Jesus had an inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Do you and I have an inner circle that we, that we spend intimate time with? I find that church leaders are the worst about this because we're so busy doing. We, and we talk about fellowship, honestly. That means having a donut and drinking coffee. I mean, functionally. Jesus had a fellowship with his disciples and they had it with each other. That is the only way we can continue to, to serve those wounded by trauma over the long haul. After our first Congo trip, um, that was 11 years ago, it, it was, I had been, Salsa and I had been doing trauma care here in the U.S. for about a decade, so it was not new at all, but it took it to a whole new level to be in a place of complete anarchy, um, you know, the genocide, etc. And I came back after a month. My heart was so full. My heart was broken. There was so much I wanted to share with people. So much. And, and I came back in a church, you know, well, how'd the trip go? Literally, literally within 30 seconds, I watched the eyes glaze over. <laughs> and I knew, good people, good people, but I knew this conversation's over. So we get to the lighter topics. Um, that, that was incredibly painful. I was just naive. Um, and, and it wasn't the, their fault. They, they didn't have a, a grid for it. I mean, there, there was, it, it didn't compute for them. I, I don't blame them. But I've learned, pass this on, and some of you know it. Many of you, I'm sure, do. Maybe I'm just underscoring it. We have to have a, a band of brothers and sisters, small team that get it. If we're going to care for those in need, we've got to have a small team that gets it, that we can share with and are sharing with at the deepest level. When we're having, whether it's the nightmares, whether it's the where in the world is God now, whatever, we have the raw, honest real conversations on a really regular basis. We're crying together, laughing together, praying together, and together we're serving the wounded. We're serving those in need. It doesn't have to be a large group, but if, we, if you don't have a group, if I don't, we're in trouble. Can't do it for the long haul. And again, it's interesting that the social science literature bears that out. Um, so... If you don't, make sure that you uh, make that adjustment. Final point. Again, Luke 11, teach us to pray. Now, Jesus gives here the, the so-called um, Lord's Prayer in, in Luke 11. And there's a lot I could say about the Lord's Prayer in terms of, of self-care. But let me just jump ahead in, in closing to Luke 18. It's another text on prayer. And Jesus tells us plainly what the point is. Um, 
he gives a parable, but he teaches the parable so that the, the disciples would learn to pray fervently and, and not become weary. In other words, that they would persevere in prayer. So he tells this, this parable of a, a poor widow, desperate widow, injustice has happened to her, and she goes to an unjust judge. It says that, God, that the judge doesn't fear God or men, but this, this woman just keeps going back saying, judge, I need justice, judge, I need justice, judge, I need justice, judge, I need justice. The, the text is kind of funny in Greek. Um, it, it, it basically, he says, she's going to drive me nuts. She, she, she's driving me crazy. So I'm going to give her justice, even though I don't fear God or man. Point being, Jesus makes it plainly, um, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? The context is injustice and suffering. And Jesus says, continue, continue, continue to cry out. It's really interesting. The word here in Greek for cry out is ba'o. It's the same word that's used in, in the Gospels when Jesus cries out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a cry of pain. It's a cry of desperation. And it's ongoing. We continue to cry out. In, in the biblical tradition, it's what we call lament. There are dozens of psalms that we call lament psalms. Um, the biggest category, and, and Old Testament scholars put the Psalms in about a half a dozen different categories. The biggest category is not praise, not kingship, messianic. It's lament. Depending on how you categorize them, it's probably over half of the Psalms are lament Psalms. And in almost every instance, it's lament because of oppression, injustice, abuse. It's how long, oh Lord, how long? It's, God, wake up, arise. God, why have you abandoned us? Can't you see what the enemies are doing? Etc. etc. Throughout the Psalms, and we have Habakkuk, and we have Job, and we have Lamentations, and we have Jeremiah. This is biblical. We lament before God. And in the process of lamenting, there's no formula, but in the process, God meets us. God meets us. Essential part of our self-care. And we do that individually and we do that in connection with others. Well, it's time for me to close. Let me, let me close with a, a quote I, I love from an Old Testament scholar uh, named John Goldingay. The context for this quote, uh, Goldingay's really fine Old Testament scholar, he watched his wife Anne suffer for years of multiple sclerosis. I have a wife with two incurable diseases, but they're not terminal. I just know, even with a non-terminal disease, it's so hard to watch a spouse suffer and you can't take it away. Well, his wife eventually died of MS. And if you know anything about MS, it's a horrific, wasting kind of disease. Here's what he said uh, about suffering. So many things we achieve are achieved only through struggle and conflict, not in easy ways. They always seem to involve crosses. 
I have so longed to find somewhere in life, some corner where joy is unmingled with pain, but I've never found it. Wherever I find joy, my own or others, it always seems to be mingled with pain. And I find that the people I most respect are people who know the link between joy and pain. And I found that if we will own pain and weep over it together, we will find Christ overflowing comfort. The bad news is there may be no corner of reality where joy is not related to pain. The good news is that there's no corner of reality where pain cannot be transformed into overwhelming joy. That is gospel truth. So caring is costly, it's painful, but in the pain we can find great joy and strength from Jesus, our suffering Savior. Let's go after it together.